I'll ask you to open up to the book of Revelation, and I'll have you go to chapter 1. A few weeks ago, my brother-in-law was visiting here for the first time, and we were getting to talking about our work and what, what we do, and he asked me how I could think of something new to say every week. He was just mystified that somehow... Every single week, I had to create material. That would be difficult. Um, So right away, I was able to explain the difference between sort of a night show host and what I do. Right? So I told him, I tried to explain to him the concept of expositional preaching, how we go either verse by verse or a passage or a chapter or a book. But expositional is taking out from the the text and saying what it says. And the reason I told him is I believe the word works. The word preached works. A great personality cannot transform a sinful heart. It just can't. I mean, God God uses personality. I think it was... Uh, Broadus, who said preaching is truth through personality, but it's the word that works. When I approach a text, let's say Revelation 4 next week, and this is sort of a transition sermon from the things that were and the things that are, and Revelation 4 is now going to be the things that are yet to come. I will either ask one of two questions. If Pastor Matt, when Pastor Matt preaches and, he, and he's studying the text before he preaches, he will ask one of two questions. Anyone who teaches or preaches God's word will ask one of two questions. And the first question is, what can I say about this passage? And that's not the right question. The second question is, what does this passage say? You see the difference? And so we want to know what it says grammatically, historically, contextually, so that we are actually rightly dividing the word of truth so that what God has said and what he means by what he says is applied to his people. It's exactly what 2 Timothy 2.15 says. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So when we come to the book of Revelation, just like if we came to the gospel according to Mark or if we came to Colossians, the question is, what does that say? What does that passage say? Now, having said that, this morning will not be an expositional sermon but we will still be guided by the second question. And uh, just trying to just stop and pause and reflect and meditate and listen with the ears of our heart, I just wanted to put forward 12 lessons of great importance from Revelation 1 through 3. These aren't the only lessons, but as I sat and I walked back through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, these are the things that I want us to feel the, the press of. So real easy, just piece of paper or a handheld device, 1 through 12. Lesson 1. In a unique way, the book of Revelation is about Jesus, the Messiah. Any, you know, wild interpretations or fascinations or 
sort of a kind of a fear mongering mentality in the handling of the book misses the person who this is about. Look at chapter one, verse one, the revelation, not revelations. This book is not called revelations. It's revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. That word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse, meaning apocalypse. And this apocalyptic literature includes symbolic imagery and numbers, not as a secret code. Are we clear on that? But to reveal a heavenly perspective on history in light of its final outcome. This is God's perspective on what's happening then and now in light of its final outcome. So the question on this first lesson is, Will you trust God who's already been there? Will you believe him who knows what the future holds? Some of you live in the grip of fear of the future, fear of failure. Or as Francis Chan says, fear of succeeding at the wrong things. Will you believe the one who is not contained by time and is going to tell you what's happening in the future? Every month I'm asked to be part of something. Pete's Coffee Rewards, Home Depot credit card, a lower mortgage. I am even occasionally asked to be part of this incredible opportunity of a Nigerian inheritance. (laughs) And all I have to do is send them my routing and account number. And And I can, I think from, if I read right, I get the whole thing. But basically at the end of the day, these choices are my choice alone, right? Which, which which appeals to the individualist nature of most Westerners. I either opt in if I think it's a benefit to me or I opt out. And these choices are made absent of any real consequences, except maybe the Nigerian inheritance. That would come with some dreadful aftermath. But here's what surprises many people. Though following Christ is a choice. Remember, Jesus came preaching in Mark 1.15, repent And believe, follow me. Even though it's a choice, it's not like those other choices. Because it comes with incredible temporal, the church, and eternal, following the Lamb into new creation, results. And this is something we need to embrace. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ, of the heavenly perspective on historical events as they're happening now, with an intended, deliberate, planned outcome. And we either believe that and adjust our living to the one who knows all things, or we don't. And that choice has incredible and very serious and eternal results. The Gospels... Reveal Jesus in his first coming, his first advent, his, his birth, earthly life, death, and resurrection. The book of Revelation presents Jesus in his second coming, his second advent, his exaltation, his glory unveiled, his unrivaled kingship. Lesson one, in a unique way, the book of Revelation is about Jesus, the Messiah. Lesson two, to miss the point of prophecy is to miss the point of revelation. Or if you go back to the first point, you miss something about Jesus Christ by missing the point of prophecy. 
What is prophecy intended to do? Satisfy curiosity? Become a Hollywood script? Throw out incredible images of being left behind? I mean, what is the intention of prophecy? Prophecy is intended to fuel faith and provide incentive for obedience. Look at verse 3, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 3 provides an interpretive key with respect to our motivation for reading this book. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear. And here's the interpretive key. Who keep what is written in it. How many times have you heard a sermon on Revelation and it's just about sort of a spinning of fanciful images, but there's really nothing to respond to except become more fearful. The interpretive key, keep what is written in it. Here's the motivational purpose for the time is near. This book, Revelation, like all other prophetic material, is intended to fuel faith and provide incentive for obedience. Number two, to miss the point of prophecy is to miss the point of revelation. Number three, and I'm going to warn you, we're not going to go through each point this fast. And some are really short. So if you, if just, you, you, there's going to be a hard, it's going to be very difficult to gauge this this morning. Some, some of you young people, especially the ones who just ran this marathon, they're like, we're already on point three. It's been four minutes. I can guarantee you I will, I will disappoint. Lesson three. Jesus is all glorious. Have, have you gotten that already in the first three chapters? He appears among the lampstands. He holds the stars in his right hand. The vision of him is absolutely stunning. Even John, who walked with Jesus, falls down as a dead man. And then there's a character of Christ revealed in every message to the church, and it's awe-inspiring or awful, if you would, full of all to the point of reverent fear. Jesus is all glorious, the treasure worth finding. The book of Revelation places front and center the glory and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, exactly what we read in Colossians chapter 1. Revelation depicts Christ as the risen, glorified Son of God ministering among the churches and preparing them for His return. Let me just give you a sample. Revelation 1 verse 5. He is the ruler of kings on earth. Just make a quick list of the kings of the earth. Kim Jong-un. President Trump. Just... Just keep, who's the ruler of kings on earth? Who is the king of kings whom they must give an account to? Who is this person who at his name every knee will bow? Jesus Christ. Verse 6, to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, that gives you an indication of who this is. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, that's the, the first and the last of the Greek alphabet. In English, it would be I am the A and the Z 
I am everything, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verses 13 to 18, chapter 1, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And then what follows is a fearful description of the exalted son of God. Jesus is more glorious than an exciting boxing match. He is more glorious than a new hit single. He is more glorious than winning a championship. Now, we can enjoy some of those things while enjoying him the most, but our problem is, as consumers, we don't often enjoy him and treasure him and find that treasure in a field and sell all to buy that field so we can enjoy the treasure. See, we have enjoyed lesser things. And Revelation is going to try to sort of recalibrate us and say, no, Jesus is the glorious one. He is the one who will bring satisfaction to your hollow heart. Do you, do you know, do we, do we understand, folks, that it's not more stuff that will bring you contentment? It's not more experiences, not more travel destinations. It is Jesus Christ. We are far too easily pleased with lesser things. John Piper uncovered a revolutionary statement by C.S. Lewis from Lewis's remarkable sermon, The Weight of Glory. Lewis states, quote, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. Lesson number three, Jesus is all glorious, the treasure worth finding. Lesson four. Revelation is about, and I'm going to quote Michael Gorman from his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, in the second part of his book, uh, this is the title I have grown to love through my study of this particular book. Revelation is about following the Lamb into the new creation. Let me repeat that. Revelation is about following the Lamb into the new creation. We sang this morning, Who would have thought that a lamb could rescue men from sin? Following the lamb into the new creation. Revelation invites us to follow the lamb in a radical, non-violent witness to the world. Right? You have the imperial Roman cult. And a lot of these letters, these messages to the churches are coming into confrontation, into friction, into hostile response from the imperial Roman cult. And it's a false worship and they have set up false gods and they are being persecuted and they are being put out of the synagogue. And what Jesus Christ does as the faithful witness who was a martyr, he invites you to follow him in that same Nonviolent witness to a hostile world. 
to preach the gospel to a world that has yet to, Revelation 1 verse 5, be freed from their sins by the Lamb's blood. Here's a desire that we have as pastors. We want to continue in our worship to nurture a love for the Lamb that was slain. A love for Jesus Christ. A love for who He is as a person. And the hollow, brittle trappings of religion will start to fall off like chain mail and we will again have this relationship with the Son of God as we nurture a love for the Lamb that was slain. Number four, Revelation is about following the Lamb into the new creation. Number five, the goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, slander, and apparent Satan domination. Okay, just say God is in control. God wants to encourage the churches because He's in control. Let me read the longer version. The goal of Revelation is to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out His purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, slander, and apparent satanic domination. Verse 4, chapter 1. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. That's the target audience right there, initially. Chapter 1, verse 11. Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So these, these seven churches each get their own particular message, but then Revelation becomes this circular letter in Asia as it goes around and is given to each of these churches. In each letter, Jesus says, I know something about you. I know your works. I know where you dwell. I know that you don't tolerate the false teachers. I know you. He would say the same thing about islands. He knows us. I know you. I know your history. I know what you've been through. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. To the one who conquers. Chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Wow. See, that only makes sense. If we are following the Lamb into the new creation where we actually have evaluated that as better than this, that as more eternal than this, that as more glorious than this. Chapter 2, verse 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Chapter 2, verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Verse 26, chapter 2, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And then he goes on to explain that further. Look at chapter 3, verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Look at verse 21. The one who conquers. Do you see this theme? 
I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is something we need to understand that Revelation is communicating. It is the goal of Revelation to bring encouragement to believers of all ages that God is working out his purposes even in the midst of tragedy, suffering, slander, and apparent satanic domination. And that should encourage us. Because never does Jesus say, listen, Smyrna, it's going to be okay. It's just going to all go away. No, he says, be faithful. Be faithful. Because there's another place. Lesson six. Revelation is both a call to worship the one true God and a call to forsake all false gods and false deities. Revelation is both a call to worship the true God and a call to forsake all false gods and false deities. These two aspects are connected. They're, they're, really, they're really striking both at the beginning and end of Revelation, but it's actually a thread that follows through this entire book. And that, that, that gives us an idea of what the intention of worship is for. Worship is an act of highlighting or showing forth your allegiances. When we gather together in the name of Jesus this morning and we sing songs to him, I mean, how often did we sing about him already today? We have just made a proclamation together that our allegiance is to one king primarily and that Jesus is God and we sing to him and we give to him and we live out Monday through Sunday our lives as a, as a pleasing sacrifice of service to him. That's what we are saying and proclaiming together. He is king. He is Lord. And the church, the true church, will bow to no other gods. We will neither accommodate nor compromise. And by the way, those, those ideas are filled in the, in the messages to the churches. Here's a warning, though. When we choose not to gather regularly, we also make a statement about who or what our gods really are. Lesson six, revelation is both a call to worship the one true God and a call to forsake all false gods and false deities. Lesson seven, as we move into chapters two to three. God evaluates his church through a very different lens than the one we often use. When God looks onto his church, see some of these churches that were rich, remember that one, Laodicea, and they, had, they were known for that black sheep wool, and they were, they were positioned, I mean, in this very prosperous sort of north, south, and east-west trading route. And, and so they could say, we are rich, we have need of nothing and through the accurate divine lens, Jesus says, no, you are pitiable and wretched. You are poor and blind and naked. God evaluates his church through a very different lens than the one we often use. Few of us, I would imagine, would want to join the church in Smyrna. They were being persecuted. They seemed insignificant and tiny. And then Jesus comes in and he says, it's probably going to get worse. And we'd be like, 
I think we're going to change churches. <laughs> right? Not that that was an option then. But, you know, that church down on the corner, they're not going through what we're going through. I think we're going to go, as, as our African friends would call it, uh, spiritual tourism. We're going, to, we're going to just start shopping around. By the way, that's the first lens that we often view the church through. Consumerism views the church as a marketplace. It asks, do I like the product? Am I happy? Does it have what I want? Are my children happy? Because we live in an entertainment-driven culture, consumerism distorts the church into a product, into an experience, into a social connection dating site. Jesus comes through a very different lens, and he sort of shatters the idea of consumerism. He also shatters the idea of individualism, which views the church as something to be taken advantage for myself when I have time. It's there for me. I still want it to be like I want it to be, consumerism. But you know what? Individualism doesn't really see where we need to come in here and we commit, we covenant together with one another, and we use our gifts mutually for the building up of one another. Individualism reduces the church to a time slot or a sermon, and if neither suits us, we go shopping. These are, this is closely linked to consumerism. Then there's traditionalism, another lens which we like to use, traditionalism. It views the church as a sacred, unchanging place, meaning a physical address or something made out of building materials. It views it first as that. I mean, in, in our language, and we still say this, but are, are we going to church, right? Steeple today. What time does, those aren't inappropriate questions. We understand what we mean by those. As long as we understand that the church, without this physical address and without these nice facilities, and if we had to meet under a tree, is still the church. Traditionalism is more about style, steeples, professional clergymen with pews, large pulpits, and service times. Now, some of that structure is needed. And some of that has a reason for why we do what we do. But that isn't the top tier of how we view the church. Traditionalism is is about doing what we've always done, the way we've always done it, regardless of whether it is healthy and effective for the community where God has placed us now. We're not really on mission as long as we go to church and that's the one unchanging thing in my life because everything else is changing rapidly. As long as I can have that sort of sentimental place where I go in and everything is just as it is. The danger is the traditionalist places very little difference between core doctrine and cultural style. Then there's pragmatism. Doing what works or others say works. The target is usually numerical growth, large buildings, and success as determined by outward gauges. Pragmatism says whatever attracts the largest group is considered good and effective. Pragmatism reasons if we just had this speaker or this music or this particular program, or if, if pragmatism were to seep into Smyrna, which there is no indication that it did, if we could just be out of our suffering... Then, dot, dot, dot. Here's a common denominator in all four views. There is a low view of God. Right? In consumerism, individualism, traditionalism, pragmatism, there's a low view of God. 
There is a high view of self. With a low view of God, there is also a low view of sin. There is a low or a completely errant view of the church, what it really is and why we are here. There is a low level of commitment. There is a low level of love for God and others. And there is a low or inauthentic passion for the worship of the Lamb and the resulting mission that extends from following Him into the new creation. Here's lesson seven. God evaluates His church through a very different lens than the one we often use. So the two seeming most weak churches. Remember this? Smyrna and Philadelphia. He's got, he's got no correction for them. But in our eyes, they seem to be failures. So let's adjust our view to see the church as God sees it. Lesson eight. The purpose of Revelation is to reveal God's plan to Christ's servants, to show them the things which must soon take place. Now go back to Revelation 1.1 again. Okay, we're going to bring it back to the very, the very first verse. Okay, look at your scriptures, verse 1, chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. What are those things? What are the things that must soon take place? We already talked about this in one of our points. The full glory and majesty of Christ. That's something that we will all see soon. The downfall, ultimate defeat, and destiny of Satan. He's a real entity with a real destiny. The end of human history on this earth. The ultimate victory of Jesus Christ over all human and demonic resistance. Revelation just opens up and shows you those things. The new heaven and, we often forget this, the new, the new earth. What will that look like? It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be beyond what we can imagine. Will there be a whole new color spectrum? I'm not sure. I mean, we could just... Let our minds unravel and think, I mean, what in the world will that look like? The final state of the wicked and the final state of the righteous. Lesson eight, the purpose of Revelation is to reveal God's plan to Christ's servants to show them the things which must soon take place. We've got to keep that in mind as, we now, as we're going to transition into Revelation chapter four next week. Lesson nine. just noticed I might have two lesson nines. Isn't that discouraging? <laughs> the first lesson nine. At the beginning of each letter, there is an aspect of Christ's character that is highlighted. Again, it's a revelation of who? Jesus Christ. And the messages to the churches place a high view on the church, albeit through a different lens, but it's still who walking in their midst. Jesus Christ. And they're to be reminded about a certain aspect of his character as he walks in their midst. Jesus speaks, and, and this is important, Jesus speaks as a royal figure, a king, but he also speaks as a pastor to the sheep of his flock. John 10, 
Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. It's a violent picture of what happens in nature. Then he says this again. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. In Revelation 7, verse 17, it follows kind of that theme. And it says, for the lamb is in the midst of the throne. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So as you see this majestic view and this incredible glorious vision of the Son of Man, the Son of God, the exalted Christ, remember he is a shepherd who knows his sheep, will lead them by still waters, living water, and he will wipe away every tear from our eye. So he's talking about us, not sheep, right? So lesson nine At the beginning of each letter, there is an aspect of Christ's character that is highlighted for our comfort. Lesson 10, not lesson nine, number two. I think I think I've got it. We have three more lessons. And this one highlights one message to one church that I I want us to recall and remember and respond to. Love deficient orthodoxy is unacceptable to God. Love deficient orthodoxy is unacceptable to God. See, the message to the church at Ephesus teaches us that orthodoxy, right teaching, straight teaching, right? The orthodontist, his job is to give you not just straight teeth, but straight teeth, right? Ortho straight, doxy teaching. Do you know that matters to God? Right teaching matters to God. But the message to Ephesus also says that orthopraxy, right practice, matters to God. Look at Revelation 2, verse 2. He commends them for their orthodoxy. That you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. And Jesus says, well done. But orthopraxy, right practice, also matters to God. Look at verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. And you say, well, what's the big deal? We have right doctrine. And so we're not loving others as we should. We're not loving God as we should. We're not loving others as we should. How serious is that? And so Jesus says, repent. Or I'm going to remove your candlestick. Do you know that Jesus does not want a church to exist if they have right teaching but no love? This is a very serious message, and it addresses two errors that we must constantly guard against ourselves. First, to those who love doctrine. To those of us who love the doctrines of grace and systematic theology and biblical theology and some of you love ancient languages the study of last things, eschatology, we need to ask ourselves this question. Is our love for doctrine accompanied by an equal or greater love for God and others? Because that's the purpose of healthy teaching. That's the purpose of straight teaching, of right doctrine. 
Do I love the doctrine more than I love God? I've met men who love the ministry of the Lord more than they love the Lord of the ministry. Can you love the word of God more than you love the God of the word? It seems the Jews did. Jesus says, you search the scriptures thinking and then you have eternal life. You've missed it. Because they speak of me. Does our passion for theology and exact interpretation result in an equal or greater passion for the living God of whom the theology reveals? Has our immersion in the scriptural text resulted in holy living? It's possible to love Bible doctrine more than you love God. It's not right, but it's possible. Charles Spurgeon said this. While the discussion of theological positions regarding Calvinism and Arminianism and all nuances in between is not unimportant, our grand object is not the revision of opinions, but the regeneration of natures. We would bring men to Christ and not to our own peculiar views of Christianity. To make proselytes is a suitable labor for Pharisees. To beget men unto God is the honorable aim of ministers of Christ. As Grant Osborne says in his commentary, orthodoxy without orthopraxy is a false religion. And that's why Jesus says, repent, or you're not going to exist as my church. Second, those who say it's enough to just love everyone and that doctrine doesn't matter is also an error. One of the greatest ways you can express love is by telling people the truth about God. His love and his judgments. Who God is, what he has done, what he expects, the grand reality that people are willingly but lined to. Gary Bretfeld wrote in his book, Great Leader, Great Teacher, quote, the most powerful means of leading the people of God is by teaching them the word of God. Second Timothy 3:16 to 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. So, yes, John 13, 34 to 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Love for one another in John 14, 15 and John 15, 14. If you love me, keep what? Keep my commandments. You are my friends. If you. If you do whatsoever, I command you. Two errors. So number 10, love deficient orthodoxy is unacceptable to God. Lesson 11. The message to the church in Smyrna teaches us that even though the church suffers, is slandered, and faces uncertain days ahead, our ultimate future is not uncertain. The message to the church in Smyrna teaches us that even though the church suffers, is slandered, and faces uncertain days ahead, our ultimate future is not uncertain. Turn with me to Revelation 2 and look at verse 9. Again, you're going to see these themes that we've already hit on. Jesus says, I know. Right? He knows where this one particular church dwells. Of several churches, he knows their works. Chapter 2, verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Look at this little, there's the divine, the divine lens says what? But you are what? The divine lens is accurate. But you are rich. 
And the slander, he knows this too. He not only knows their tribulation, he knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are Jewish people who are not acting as representatives of God. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. See, their suffering is not going to end. It's actually going to get worse. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, that only makes sense if you walk by faith. And you follow the Lamb into the new creation. In the midst of satanic opposition, we the church are called to a fearless and faithful witness to the world because Christ will bring life out of death. Therefore, press on with a fearless and faithful witness. Number 11, even though the church suffers, is slandered, and faces uncertain days ahead, our ultimate future is not uncertain. Final lesson, lesson 12. In this, as we move into Revelation chapter 4 next week, we need to recognize that Revelation has overlapping stories. It's not just about trumpets and bowls and beasts. Though we're not going to ignore those. But Revelation actually consists of several sort of overlapping, simultaneous stories that involve creation and recreation. It involves redemption of people and the earth. Recreation groans waiting for the adoption. It involves judgment. A very unpopular message today. But that's one of the key stories that is overlapping. Creation and recreation. Redemption. Judgment. Here's one we often miss. And remember, we, we talked about this before, that two themes that people commonly associate with Revelation, Antichrist and a rapture, aren't mentioned anywhere in the book of Revelation. But you know what is? The throne of God and witness for him. And we sort of forget that. Revelation is an incentive for us to witness to the world of the Lamb of God who was slain. And then victory. Almost in every letter, he who conquers, he who conquers, he who conquers, he who conquers. And then there's vindication, and then there's victory. Creation and recreation, redemption, judgment, witness, victory. Let me leave you with these words. As John writes in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. That is, if you're born again. That's the good news. That's the gospel. It is a gift of grace. If you believe in your heart, that Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you are saved. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Revelation is not something in addition to the gospel. It's highlighting a particular point of the gospel the good news he's coming back next week we will lift the emblems of broken body and shed blood to our lips and we will make this profession together we will remember that it was jesus christ who died as a sacrificial death for the atoning of our sins and we will also proclaim something as often as you do this
You remember, you look back until when? Until he comes. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Let's pray.